Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 163. So glad you could join me. Our main guest today is Nikita Parks. She'll be here in uh, about 10 minutes. Um, but before you, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click on the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. All that good stuff. Anything you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be much appreciated. Um, and thanks for joining us, too, on this unusual time. Um, today's guest, uh, Nikita Park, is uh, in India. And so um, the regular time doesn't work at all. It'd be like 4 a.m. there. So um, so glad we could do it early um, at noon Eastern time for the first time. And so glad that people have found us anyway. So um, good to see everybody out there. Now, as always, we'd like to start out with uh, the poets Respond poems. But because it's an unusual time, um, neither of the poets um, that we have for poets Respond could make it. So um, I'm going to play their poems, though. And the first poem was this one here by George Franklin. This is Sunday's poet. And uh, George actually right now is um, teaching poetry in the prison in Florida. That's what he does every Monday morning. He has a, a Poets in the Prison program, which, you know, we all love. Um, and that's a much better place to be than the Rattlecast, as great as the Rattlecast is. So um, here's his poem, though. This is uh, George Franklin. And uh, it's Yom Kippur, and I'm not fasting with Sunday's poem. And I'll read his uh, note. Uh, for him. So George says, this particular poem doesn't require much in the way of explanation. Um, As recently as several hours ago, there were media reports of a mass grave in Lyman with 50 bodies. Today was also Yom Kippur. Uh, The ravine in Kiev was, of course, uh, Babin Yar. And uh, so that's what the poem is about. And here is George reading the poem himself. It's Yom Kippur, and I'm not fasting. The first thing I thought of this morning was coffee. Cafe au lait in a blue ceramic bowl, a slice of toast still warm in my hand. I didn't even remember today was Yom Kippur. I say I'm not observant, which sounds like I have poor eyesight, but really means that when God and I have a chat, all I hear is a dial tone at the other end of the line. I'm tired of imagining what doesn't have an image. There are no burning bushes in my backyard, just history that can't be changed, redeemed, or atoned for. God, I have too many images in my head today, videos of villages captured and recaptured, reporters asking, can you tell us where the bodies are buried? Someone points to a field, fresh turned dirt not far from a road. 81 years ago, they were the bodies of Jews in a ravine in Kiev. Now Ukrainians, when can we say atoning doesn't work? The earth is full of graves, mass and singular. Trees send out roots to thread rib cages that insects and worms have already hollowed. Each year the ground sinks a little. In the history of the world, no one ever went broke selling shovels. God, there is something wrong with people. Thousands of years of fasting hasn't fixed it. Neither has prayer or the sacrifice of unblemished cattle or firstborn sons. The sun will set soon, and the day will be over. I was taught the gates of heaven swing closed then. No more prayers. The ones who haven't repented yet aren't going to. Another year's passed. Men put on their jackets and walk home. And once again, that was George Franklin with uh, It's Yom Kippur, and I'm not fasting. Um, just a beautiful poem about the the way we're going through so much and, and wondering why things have to be the way they are. Um, 
And now we have another poem coming up, too. This is going to be Tuesday's poem by Jack E. Lortz. And, and Jack also can't be here um, for a very sad reason. I'll read his note first. Um, and this is what, what Jack is going to be writing about tomorrow. Um, Jack says, On October 3rd, my granddaughter Alyssa was found dead in the street near the library. She may have been struck by a car, too, but she died from an overdose of fentanyl. My lovely, lively, loving granddaughter was 30 and had a daughter 11 and a baseball-playing son who turned 12 that day. And uh, this is, um, unfortunately, Jack is at the funeral right now. Um, this is Jackie Lortz reading, How Can You Lose a Granddaughter? How Can You Lose a Granddaughter? Sitting in a virtually empty movie theater, my daughter's being called out to the parking lot to talk to the police. How can you lose a granddaughter found dead in the morning, lying in the middle of the street, apparently of an overdose, fentanyl? How can you lose a granddaughter lost, wandering in a land of wonder, an 11 and a 12-year-old following her around helplessly. How can you lose a granddaughter? And she isn't just a kid. She's 30. Going on a strange journey into outer space. All alone. When will I see her again? How can you lose a granddaughter? more lost than I am now as I write this memorial to show how much I miss her. How can you lose a granddaughter? And that was Jack E. Lortz reading How Can You Lose a Granddaughter? Just a heartbreaking poem about such an important topic with, um, you know, we had Susan Vespolian, um, with her son who was addicted to, to opioids and um, just how many people are lost to fentanyl right now. I mean, something has to be done about it. Um, and a tragedy there in Jack's family that was captured so well, the grief and the, and the tragedy of it. Um, yeah, a very touching poem. So that was, uh, that's going to be tomorrow's poem by Jackie Lords, How Can You Lose a Granddaughter? Um, now we're going to take a quick break and go to today's main guest, um, Nikita Park. So uh, sit tight, and I will be right back in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest, Nikita Park, holds a master's in linguistics, a three-year diploma in French, and another master's in English. Um, Diacritics of Desire, 2019, is her debut book of poems, followed by Amour and Apocalypse, a novel in translation published, um, uh, published in India and overseas. She's the recipient of the Mukti Bose Memorial IPPL Young Poet Award in 2022 and one of the Nassim Excellence in Writing Award 2020. Nikita currently edits the EKL Review, a winner of the Ekfrastic Challenge here at Rattle in 2021. Her most recent book, My City is a Murder of Crows, was published in July. Um, and here she is, Nikita Park. Hey, Nikita, how are you doing? 
Hi, Tim. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's definitely my pleasure. Um, I loved the the frastic poem that we published. Um, that was just a, such a wonderful poem in a wonderful form, which we'll get to later, I think. Um, but yeah. do you want to start us out um, with a poem to get the ball rolling? Yeah, cool. Um, we can start with circles with the with the one that was published by Rattle. It's on page sixty-five, I think. Okay, great. Thank you. So this form is called the antadi. Ant literally means end. And Adi means beginning. So basically this means to begin with the end. So what happens in the Anthadi form is that the your next line has to begin with the last word of the previous line. And it was very popular in Tamil literature. There are like thousands of published Tamil poetry that, that have followed uh, this pattern, the style. So yeah, I'll jump into the poem. Circles. On a page, a word stirs. Stirring stalks, flower, buds of May. May showers, teas are forlorn skies. Skies that mate, then split to birth a language. This language that is shaped like a yellow flower. A yellow flower crowns my pretty heartache. A heartache that weaves sunsets around a single word. A single word that stirs on my lonely page. Yeah, beautiful poem. That was Circles, again, from um, My City is a Murder of Crows. Um, and that's going to be, we'll just say it right now, that's going to be the prompt for this week. So um, to write a poem in that form. Um, can you, So as such, can you say a little bit more about that form, just since we uh, we jumped in with it? Um, um, you, you mentioned that it's a popular form. Um, so so how, how would you go about writing a poem like that in that, in that style? So basically, um, this, is, this was very common in a language called Tamil. And what I actually discovered the form like two, three years ago, and it was fascinating. And I tried to write a poem in another language, in Hindi, using the same form. Mm -hmm. And I observed that with the change of language, the impact that it has changes. So like Sanskrit or Tamil, these are very phonetic languages. So if you're using Antadi in Tamil or Sanskrit, it kind of gives a very mantra-like hymn to the whole to the whole uh, poem but if you're using it in english it kind of gives a sense of intrigue hmm. in hindi it gives a very different uh, effect so it was fascinating the way a, a single form can you know change a, a poem you know depending on the language so that was fascinating yeah yeah very interesting so that's gonna be the prompt for this week we'll we'll, we'll read the whole prompt and explain the form a little bit more uh, when we do that but um but let's talk about your book, um, which I just love. Yeah. The, there's like this dreamy quality where everything is a layered metaphor for everything else as you move through the city of loss and love. Um, um, how did the book come to be? It's a relatively, it's a, I mean, it's a book that just came out. Um, the pandemic plays a crucial role in the book. Yeah. Um, so, so how did the book come to be? And, and can you describe that, that dreamy quality that you're going for, the connections that you're making between sort of layers of existence, which is fascinating? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, the book, I think, first of all, I think the title and the cover, they kind of express the intrigue of the book very well. Because this book has kind it kind of, you know, it has poems from the last three years. So it has poems from the pre-COVID times, from the worst of the pandemic, and also now, like when uh, we are hopefully shifting out of the pandemic. So the world has changed so much in these last few years. And I think the book kind of tries to denote that, like kind of express that. And um, initially I had not, it, it's not a very planned book. It came about very organically. So the book is kind of divided into four sections, like very 
ordered and uh, you know very distinct chapters so the first two sections were actually two very different chapbooks that i was writing i had not planned it all to come together so well yeah. but then uh, when my publisher kind of solicited the book i saw that you know these sections kind of have a story of their own so in my imagination the book is the body and you begin with the heart and then you move on to the mouth poems and from there you move to the poems you know uh, on the abdomen the sinking feeling that you have you know sometimes um, you know when you are facing disappointment so that that section deals with that and the last poem kind of deals with the you know um, the nerves of the book so these were poems written about you know very dark themes like death and illness so the poem interestingly starts with travel poems like you know the ones that i was writing in 2019 and it kind of moves towards you know de- death and darkness you know the way the last few years have been mm-hmm. so and uh, yeah i think it came about very organically in my head when i started ordering it all but yeah well let's uh, let's hear another couple of poems maybe two more um for now because uh, the poems are tend to be short so um yes. let's, let's do two more okay so um we can do um okay page number 48 it's called um this mouth is an ocean this mouth is an ocean floating on your tectonicity its water now swirling between two open jaws a shock of skin tissue raw flesh and now it has grown a lingual muscle that consumes the bone below the neck now all teeth and softnesses all of language too until all awareness is subsumed under water all of existence is a gasping for air hmm. and that was this mouth is an ocean from uh, yeah. my city is a murder of crows and um, the next one is on page 43 skyline of a prayer it's my favorite poem in the book hmm. skyline of a prayer fajr azan breaks the sky into two the lit half is a prayer its glowing mouth spreads through my language and settles in my chest maybe god is the singular breath that floods you whole someone exhales a muted ardas somewhere it rises to the ether and becomes the sun all faith prerequisites abandonment so this prayer abandons me and becomes itself yeah another beautiful poem that is a skyline of a prayer and you mentioned that was your favorite poem in the book um what what makes it your favorite poem and, and how um it's always fascinating to me cuz like i know my favorite poems that are my own favorite or not everybody else's favorite and there's something weird about like the personalness of a favorite poem so what yeah. what is it that makes that your favorite poem So um this uh, I used to be a complete atheist before the pandemic hit uh-huh, yeah. and this was <laughs> this was written just after like you know the pandemic hit and we were all asked to like stay inside our homes and then I don't know I kind of became spiritual so this was the first poem that I wrote about prayer and you know the efficacy of prayers and things like that so it's a personal journey so I think that's why Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating, and that's the thing that with poetry, it's that that those who are actually going to do um, the the pr- the prompt for this week was spots of time, 
which are moments where um, your life changes based on what, you know, something, some little, maybe seemingly small moment where everything yeah. shifts. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's fascinating that yeah. that really is for me, you know, my own personal favorite poems that I've written are all about those kind of things that just have such personal meaning to me. Um, because they, they, they're moments that change my life. And then finding that yeah. in a poem is so valuable to you personally. Um, so, so what yeah. was it? Was it, I, I, I don't know. I assume, um, I'm, I'm assuming this, the I in the book is you. So I'm assuming you had a bad bout with COVID. Was that, um, was that the impetus for, for the spiritual journey? So I was hospitalized in 2020, August, I think. Mm-hmm. And I had like a fever of 105. Oh, wow. And they could not find it. They could not find COVID in the tests. And I was in the hospital for a week. And it was like really, really bad. I think after that experience, a lot of things changed. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so what, So how did you, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about how, you know, spirituality came in from, from being an atheist. How did... I think a lot of spirituality comes from fear. So I was like scared as hell. Mm. And I think that was when I kind of, you know, started praying, I guess. And that's how, you know, and I I found a lot of comfort in that. In like, you know, submitting all your fears to an, you know, entity. I I found a lot of comfort in that. So I think from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, how, yeah. how long, so you said you were in the hospital for a week with that? Um, was there much yes. recovery afterward or did, were you sort of back to normal? Oh my God, yeah, yeah, my recovery took, it wasn't COVID. I mean, they said, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not sure. This was like early 2020 and a lot was not known about COVID then. Mm-hmm. But I had like a really high fever. So I was isolating before hospitalization and then I was isolating after I was back from the hospital. And the whole experience of like going through such high fever and also being alone, that was scary. That was jarring. That was it was the first time in my life when I was like, that's that's it. So I think it changed a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I can imagine how it would. I, I couldn't imagine it not changing a lot of things. Um, yeah, yeah. So so let's uh, talk about how you became a poet. Um, what? How long have you been writing? Was there something at a young age that you fell in love with poetry, or or is it was there some kind oh, of transformative been... event that led you to it? No, I think I've always been a very shy and quiet kid. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I'm more scared of public speaking than I'm uh, scared of death. <laughs> <laughs> Literature has always been that comfort zone. And I have been, I've been into writing diaries and like poems since I was very, very young. So it has always, I've always been a poet, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, for as long as I can remember, I've been a writer. Yeah. And, and what is it about poetry? And, and, you know, if you if you were writing diaries very young, um, how did they become poems and why? Like, why are you drawn to that form rather than other types of writing? I think uh, when we were in school, we had this English teacher and then he had asked us, you know, as an assignment to write poems. And that was the first time when I wrote something. I mean, now when I look back, it was a very shitty poem, but then he loved it a lot. And that was a very big kind of, you know, it kind of inspired me to keep going on, you know. Mm-hmm. At that age, when somebody praises you for something, you kind of want to keep doing that. So I think I just kept writing and I guess I got better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's great. It's so true. I mean, that just having great teachers that encourage you is such an important yeah. thing. I mean, if you, you can look back and like all the things that I love doing myself, there was some little moment of encouragement that sort of made me want to keep doing it. And then... You end up doing right. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's hear another poem. Okay, so the, the next poem, let's move on to some city poems because the book is, you know, titled My City is a Murder of Crows. So page number 20. Okay. Cityscape. 
for the conversations with the Hyderabadi Uber bike guy from Adipatnam to Kakatiya Hills. As we zoom past the city lights etched on our Februarys, his dialect becomes the city, chortling at my efforts to piece this metropolis together in clumps of disparateness. I had pared at its essence with fork and knife, tried to cut a little piece to take back home as a memoir. Oh, but you don't love cities like that, he may have said. They are not for possessing. Yeah, it's a beautiful poem too, Cityscape. And there's this metaphor of the city that runs through the whole book, I mean, which is the central... Yeah. Maybe maybe a, a good thing to do would be explain the title so people could understand what, um, you know, how is... How is uh, My City a Murder of Crows? And why did you come up with that title? Okay, so the titular poem, uh, the, the, the title is from a poem uh, which I had written right after the first dose of the vaccine. Hmm. So, you know, prior to the vaccination, so many deaths were happening and like ambulances were like zooming past my house day in, day out. Hmm. And that was freaking me out, the, the number of deaths and all that. And after the first dose of vaccine, I ventured out into the city for the first time and... I saw that people were being careless again. Mm-hmm. So there was optimism, but there was also carelessness. And that made me think of the city as a murder of prose, you know? Like, wait, let me read the poem. Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. It's on page 29, I think. Okay. Survival. Post jab, my city is a murder of prose. Loud claws, sharp claws, and beaks that may break bread or carry the dead. Yeah, yeah. So the city, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. It was starting to get noisy again. And, you know, it's like people forgot whatever happened in the past. So that was that, that really just freaked me out. So that's when I wrote it. Yeah, for sure. And in the book, the, the city itself is like the main character, I would say. Um, um, how? Because I think... Yeah. I think as urban cosmopolitan poets, we are constantly negotiating with the city space. And prior to the pandemic, I think I had not realized, you know, like when you were forced to be locked in, locked up inside your house, and then after those months when you ventured out into the streets again, and then you saw the city as something completely different. Hmm. You know, it's so pluralistic, all of these things that the city can be. So... Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. And um, and so how long have you... It's Calcutta is the city, right, that, that you're referencing. Yeah. Um, how long did you grow up yeah. there? And, and I know you've been around a lot for different degrees, yeah. obviously, but, but how long have you have you been in Calcutta? I have been here all my life. Mm-hmm. I was born here, yeah. And, uh, and, and so, so describe it for us. Like, what, what makes the city unique? So... Um... Calcutta was the capital um, when the British were in India. Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful. It's it's very culturally, um, it's amazing. It is like a city that's like locked in uh, time. Like if you come here, you'll feel you're like, you know, simultaneously 100 years before and simultaneously 100 years ahead. It's, it's amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. If you ever come to India, you've got to come to Calcutta. It's something else. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, let's hear, let's hear another poem. Okay, um, we can read The City is a Synonym on page 39. Okay. The city is a synonym 
for perennial beginnings. Something hits a wall, something else crosses over, passes into another dimension, becomes something else. Nobody knows how to accept something as just the thing anymore. Wilted white roses from your birthday still exude freshness in my phone, and now they become ink across a screen. We let nothing really die, you see. Things end, then begin into something else. A wilt is a waltz, is wet smoke. Yeah, beautiful. That was the city as a synonym. And and that, it's a great example of, of the way the book um, operates. There's so many layered metaphors throughout, and everything is sort of an allegory for everything else, which is just a beautiful way of writing. Um. Can you talk more about that, about about the way that the that the city transforms into it's almost like like a, um, you know, like we're like a multicellular organism. And then the city is like another organism that we create out of all of our bodies, you know, and that that's the sense that I got reading this book that, you know, that the, the collective nature of our reality as like like little cells in this big machine of the city um, yeah yeah can, yeah. You, can you speak more about that because that seems like the central theme of the book the way that we're all connected and the way that there's this sort of organic nature to the way we emerge and everything affects everything else absolutely it does i used to do this thing where you know like a couple of years ago before the pandemic i would just go out of my house like without a plan in my head and i would just just travel like I wouldn't know what metro I'm going to take or where. It would just be an instinctual thing. And I would just move about and observe the city. And it is so fascinating to see the hustle. And, you know, at every corner, something new is happening. Something different is happening. It is insanely um, attractive, you know, the way these things uh, happen. If you just go out and, like, do nothing and just observe. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like a like some huge dance that everybody has a a, yeah. a role in or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so most of the poems are short, um, and it's interesting. Um, is, is there a reason for that that you tend to write at that length? Um, do, you, do you think? No, actually, um, during uh, because most of these poems were written during the COVID uh, period. I was, you know, I had a very bad case of writer's block, mm-hmm. and then I didn't know how to bring myself out of it. So I started, you know, I took up this exercise where I would take a single metaphor and write a poem around it. Mm-hmm. So it could be a three-line poem or a four-line poem, but it was just an exercise to come out of that mental rut. And that kind of worked. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the next set of poems that I will read are those single thought, you know, single metaphor poems that I wrote during the pandemic. Yeah. Well, let's hear them then since you, you bring them up. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is called Quicksilver on page 45. Okay, Quicksilver. Your face is a sugar scrub. I apply onto my face. A handful of grainy coarseness that melts into my cheeks, changes form, becomes skin, until one cannot tell one from the other. The next one is on page 44. Shapes of a clothesline. This mouth is an Indian balcony during the months of Savan and Bhadu. Someone tiptoes across it all day at the pretext of drying clothes. Hmm. The next one is on page 57. Hmm. 
It's called separation. This morning, a kitchen accident and the skin became wood. Chunks of it chipped away, separated from the body, dissolved into ash. Not quite unlike this heart in some kinds of absences. And then there was one more that you wanted to do? We could do a lot more if you want. <laughs> okay. Um, the first poem, Scripture, page 19. My mouth is a prayer waiting to be translated. It is soft light, floating faith, preed on lightness. In its warmth, a city happens. Yeah, that was a great first poem, too, because it really sets the stage for that way that the city becomes a character in the book. Um, yeah, yeah, great way to start. So so interesting that those were poems written to get out of writer's block, which I think a lot of people can appreciate. Um, you know, just I, I think the trick is that to, to just make yourself write no matter what, <laughs> you know, yeah, like give yourself yeah. a reason, let yourself write bad poems. Um, when I had writer's block, I had a series of poems um, that I wrote where I was... Um, um, I pretended I was abducted by aliens and they had, they oh, showed wow. me a picture and I had to explain it, but they couldn't really understand mm-hmm. language. So I had to write it in a poem. <laughs> then, okay. So, um, yeah. So just stuff like that really works um, because it lets you, it frees yourself up and lets you not have um, sort of expectations, you know, which is just a wonderful way yeah. to do. So do you write, I mean, there are a lot of these, these poems. Do you write um, every day? Is it a part of a, a regular exercise for you? I don't. What I do is I can't sit down with a pen and paper and write. So I'm usually writing when I'm like moving about. I could be waiting for my dentist's appointment and, you know, I would have my phone on me and I would be scribbling stuff in the notes app. Mm-hmm. That's how I usually write. I don't sit down and write. Ah, interesting. Like I can edit later on, but yeah, it's usually if I have a thought, I'll just pen it down, you know, in my on my phone and then maybe work on it later. Ah, interesting. So, so these were all written on the phone. Yes, everything. All of these poems. Oh, wow. That's really fascinating. So do you think that affects the style? Is that something to do with the, the length and the sort of size? You, you know, if you look at a phone, like they could kind of fit on a phone screen. Is that, is that part of it, you think? That's interesting. I never thought of it that way, but maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so so how has um, been the reception of the book and in, in your work in general? Um, do you... You know, because you you write in English, and I know from doing our um, tribute to India poets issue that um, um, poetry in India. I mean, there's so many languages, and there's so many big sort of like areas of poetry that are sort of separate because they're all in different languages. And English is sort of a less written in kind of language um, than the other other sort of the other languages that people are that, that the poetry has more sort of life in. I guess you could say, as far as like selling books and sharing things. Um, so, so what is, why is, why did you choose to write in English and, um, yeah. And and what's been, what's been your experience trying to sell and share books that way, that way? Okay. So first of all, English is an official, uh, like language in India. Mm -hmm. It is one of the Indian languages. There is no one English. There are Englishes, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the rules of the language, they kind of change with the, with, you know, the native speakers, like for example, double negation. That will be incorrect in American English or British English, but that's perfectly all right in South African English. Mm-hmm. So every English has kind of its own rhythm and lilt and stuff. So in India, we have like 
thousands of languages and you know there are multiple dialects in each of these languages so the language that i speak rajasthani i speak a number of languages but like in rajasthani the dialect that i speak and if i meet someone who speaks a different dialect it sometimes becomes unintelligible because it's so vast right but um indian english poetry in india is huge it's, it's massive the market is, is massive there are, yeah there are a lot of people writing um see that's the opposite in- of i'm trying to remember who told me that um somebody that i talked to and we interviewed um so that it's sort of um like like the people who write in um native indian languages um sort of that feels like more prime primary and like the i don't know that that, yeah. that English English language poetry is sort of less I don't know not respected is the right word but but less appreciated than like in Hindi Hindi poetry. I disagree. I disagree. Yeah. Oh, that's that's fascinating. But I mean, see, I have no idea. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah I may I may have a bias because I write in English so I know folks who write in English so maybe I'm a part of that culture so maybe I don't know a lot of people who say write in Hindi because I don't write very frequently in Hindi mm-hmm. so I may not know that audience. But English poetry in India is huge. Oh, that, that's fascinating. So, so where, um, where are there a lot of literary magazines? Um, you know, where are you publishing? You should, uh, yeah, you should definitely check out the yearbook of Indian poetry in English. It's mm-hmm. edited by um, uh, Vinita Agrawal and Sukrita Paul Kumar, and it's published by Havakal Publishers. Mm-hmm. And I think you will get a lot of, you know, uh, like a pan-India flavor of, of you know, uh, poems in, in in these books. So mm-hmm. they've had two issues out till now. The Yearbook of Indian Poetry in English, two thousand twenty and twenty one, mm-hmm. and they're working on the third one. So what they do is they publish the best of Indian poets published, you know, all over the world. Uh, the best of those poems. They have like a committee, like like a team, and they sit and then they like you know, it's a very um democratic process, and it's it's fascinating. The books are amazing. Yeah, that's you can check that. Yeah, that does sound fascinating. Yeah. Like similar to um, Best American Poetry, except for yep. it's, yeah. except for um, in Best American Poetry, it's completely not democratic <laughs> because it's whoever was editing it that that year ends up. So you know, some years we have six poems in there, and other years we have none. And um, so for these poems, there are two editors, but there's like a like a jury, and the process is completely blind, and the poems have to be published poems from the for previous year. So. Oh, that's really great! Yeah, so that's the yearbook of Indian poetry, and so there's two volumes yes. out. Yeah, that's fascinating. Definitely, we'll have to check that out. Um, and, and talking about the languages um, that that you were referring to, um, you have a degree in linguistics, and so how did that? I do have yeah, how did that come to be? Like, why did you decide to get a degree in linguistics, and and how does that affect your poetry? I think um, disciplines like linguistics they kind of inform you about the way. A language works like the scientific ways in which a language works, and that kind of affects everything that you do, and it also informs your writing in a lot of ways. So, it was a. I mean, after I did my graduation in English, I decided to take like an offbeat path. So I decided to choose uh, linguistics. Um, it was amazing, but like after those two years, I kind of missed my own, you know, Shakespeare and Keats and Wordsworth, and so I went back and did another master's in English. So. Mm-hmm. One very fascinating thing that happens is like uh, when we are writing, like you must have noticed that in my poems also, we tend to use a lot of Indian words in our English poems, because there are a lot of emotions or words or you know phrases that are not satisfactorily uh, satisfactorily uh, translatable in English. Mm-hmm. Like the poem I read, I wrote. 
Fajrazan breaks the sky into two. I did not write the first Islamic call for prayer breaks the sky into two. That would not have the same impact. Mm-hmm. So often we uh, kind of end up using the words from our native languages because they just we want to retain that feel mm-hmm. in the in the poems. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And so, so what? Um, um, for your for your master linguistics, what do you, is there something you focused on um, in in your study? In what? In linguistics. In, in, in linguistics, yeah. So in linguistics, we basically uh, studied like the, the very scientific aspects, like semantics and phonology and phonetics and morphology, how sounds are built, how how words are combined, and uh, you know how um, everybody has an LAD or a language acquisition device in their um, you know uh, minds, and that is how humans can do language, but like monkeys can't because we have the we have the facility for language in our brains, and also we did a lot of theory, like linguistic theory. Um, for example, there is this uh, theory which I love, which is called um, the theory of relativity in English and uh, of languages, which states that every language that you speak, it kind of gives you a different worldview. Mm-hmm. So if you speak English, you look at the world in a certain way. But if you also speak Hindi, when you speak in Hindi, you're looking at the world in a completely different way. Languages literally shape the way we look at the world and the way we think. You cannot think without language, can you? Mm-hmm. So the language that you use to think, it kind of shapes your worldview. Yeah. I mean, and in India, like nobody speaks just one language. Everybody speaks multiple languages. Mm-hmm. So there's that 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 add-on there. Yeah, I mean, the, the layering and the shifting between languages is just yeah. fascinating. And, yeah. and that really plays into these poems because cause there's um, such shifting between through metaphor between different ideas yeah. like like the city as a the city as an entity and then the body sort of laying on top of it or like the i don't know I, what, reading the poems i get this this image in my head of like a body on a table or something and then the city sprawling out on top of it and it's it's just fascinating the way that you conjure that image through metaphor um and through really kind of repetition too because there are a lot of phrases that reoccur throughout the poems too and so they kind of blend together in this um like i said like a dreamy quality like it's sort of like walking through this city that's also a body that's also a space and and um you know and and there's all of life happening simultaneously like it does in a city because people are being born and dying every day you know as is you know the ambulances go by um but anyway yeah it's it's fascinating to see that how do you how do you is there any way that you can like explain a way like an example of a way that that um that your your view of something has changed based on which language you're speaking Hmm. A direct example. I can't think of an example right now, but obviously our relationship with languages. Uh, when you speak multiple languages, you can kind of feel it. Like I know when I'm speaking in Hindi, I'm I look at the world differently, and when I'm speaking in French, like things change. Like things in my head change when I'm speaking French. So it kind of uh, does happen. Do you speak another language? I don't. I wish I did. I feel terrible for not. Um, a tiny. I can read a little bit of Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> that's about okay. it. <laughs> okay. One example is that um, I can't remember which language, but there is one language. Like we normally have left, right, and, and directions like left and right and stuff. There is one language that kind of gives directions like northwest, south. There is no left, right, up and down. Mm-hmm. So these people tend to have a very good sense of direction. Yeah, it's little things like that. <laughs> Yeah, the way a language talks about time, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, that also kind of, you know, shapes the way you look at time. 
Yeah, that that direction thing is a is a fascinating thing because um, I, I read I think an interview or maybe just a, a, a article on the person who did that research, and um, and what it was like she couldn't she couldn't figure out how anybody was able to do this because it, instead of like saying like this phone is to my right, somebody would say like this phone is to the you know north by northwest, and then and exactly. so she couldn't imagine how you like kept a compass in your head until she realized that everybody has a map in their head. And and because they they judge directions this way, um, you know, you, they see the world as if they're like a character in like a video game almost, like a two dimensional. Like I'm here, and so I and this is north, and that's how they see the world literally. And it's because of that no sense of direction. That's a perfect example. That's great. Yeah, I love that. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and it does. It shapes everything. And so there's a way that we can't. I don't. Do you feel like? Like as me, as like a naive, just English speaking person who doesn't know multiple languages, sadly, um, do you think I, I'm like missing out on so much like reading your poems because I don't, you know, I have to, I looked up a lot of words um, as I was reading because, you know, you do include them, which I love doing because you get to learn. But, um, but do you feel like I'm missing out in a way? And, and I don't know. Is there anything you think about that? I think every, every single human being should know more than one language because it also helps you prevent things like dementia and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like literally, if you speak more than two languages, um, you can actually prevent a lot of mental uh, health issues. I mean, I've, I've read that somewhere. Yeah. So, and also the kind of, it kind of expands your personality in a lot of ways. Like. Yeah. Well, I definitely feel inferior and slightly defective for only, <laughs> <laughs> only knowing one language. No, I really do. I really, maybe that should be a goal. Like I should... Um, you know, pick up a new language every couple of years or something and really focus on even that. something like sign language, even that mm-hmm. even sign language has like its own set of grammar and rules and all of that. Like literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, if anybody has any questions for um, Nikita, uh, please leave them in chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass them along. But let's hear uh, another poem or two. Okay. Um we can do the city reacts to news about the war, page 37. Okay, thank you. So a couple of months back, I had a fracture, like I uh, fractured my uh, left foot. And it's very interesting to me how little images from your personal life kind of seep into your poems. Mm-hmm. And that is what is happening in this poem. The city reacts to news about the war. The city is a dream grafted in stone. A night descends and jerks it into existence. Somewhere, a heel bone cracks, letting out a scream that is at once primal and prophetic. They are now trying to slap on a plaster over a fracture that is a permanent rupture on the exoskeletal structure of this city. The site of injury has swollen to the size of a pixelated child's horror on seeing his father stay behind with a Kalashnikov. The skin is the color of gunshot screams spanning your reality and my horrified imagination. Oh, but don't you know, the city is a genetic reproductive schema. It is every city to ever exist. Everything is but one thing, just as one thing swells, wiggles out, and takes the form of everything. The pavements of this city are waiting to draw lifeblood from the veins of another's book-stocked windows. 
The cities inside our screens are waiting to know what amount of fiberglassing will ease this intumescence. Hmm. Yeah, beautiful poem. The city reacts to news about the war. Um, yeah. Um, so, so this was a time, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like we saw so much of like during the, um, uh, you know, whole war thing a few months ago, uh, like the way everything was in the news and the way people reacted to it. And the fact that we have so much of information, but we still can't do a lot about it. And the anxieties that, you know, that brings. So I try to catch all of that in this, in this poem. Mm -hmm. It also has a personal metaphor of the fracture. So, yeah, yeah, you definitely do. Um, can you describe your writing process a little bit? You mentioned that you write on your phone taking notes, but, but do you revise a lot afterward or is it sort of, where does it, where does it come from? Um, all the creativity that emerges out of you? The editing process, it kind of depends on the poem. Sometimes mm -hmm. if I feel like a poem needs work, I will sit down and edit. And sometimes a poem kind of writes itself. And then I feel like I don't need to edit a lot. And um, the creativity, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, <laughs> it is just there. I mean, you look at something and that thing reminds you of something else. And... I kind of like to form strange metaphors in my head. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great And they, they usually come from my personal life and, you know, the things around me and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a great way to put it. Um, a, a few people have said, um, you know, it's like, so Ted, Ted Guevara says um, brevity is sacred. And um, Attractive Fae, he Thank mentioned you. scripture. And, and, and you had a journey into spirituality with this book. Um, how much of that... How much of a poem is a prayer for you? And is that sort of a daily prayer practice to be to be writing poems and, and, and sort of speaking to whatever is out there in the universe? Sadly, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't write every day. Mm -hmm. I write when I feel like writing. I, like I sometimes instinctively know that I need to write. Sometimes what happens is an idea germinates in, in the head, but it's not quite ready to be taken down on paper. Mm -hmm. And I know that I know as so well, I let it stay in the head and it kind of forms and gradually when I feel like it is ready to be out on paper, I write it down mm -hmm. with the whole spirituality thing. I kind of write a personal blog. I mean, the, the only person who can read that is me. So that is where I write to God. So stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. That's really interesting. So how do you determine what, what should be shared with, with an audience and what is just for yourself? I happen to be an insanely private person, like mm. insanely private person. So like, I don't know, a lot of poems never make it to like websites and, and webzines, but I kind of know what, what or how much to share and what not to share. Or even the whole layering thing, like you said, like earlier what I used to do was I would make, a poem would be so complex that you'd never be uh, able to figure out what triggered it. So that kind of makes me feel safe. Like, okay, like you can read a poem, but you wouldn't know what triggered it. So that kind of like makes me feel not vulnerable. So yeah. there's that. Interesting. Is that something that you would like to do more of? Um, or do you, do you sort of like being that, that private aspect? Do you wish you could get through and be more open about your, yourself? Or, do you, or is that something that you just feel comfortable with and, and you're happy about? I think privacy is sacred. I mean, it's a superpower. Hmm. Today in this day and age, if you can retain your privacy and your privacy and your personal life, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. That's a great way to look at it. Um, people overshare. I think I think people tend to overshare, and that kind of causes a lot of anxiety and things. I like to like I use Facebook and stuff to like share my work and stuff. That's it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And and then it really, it adds, I think, you know, the, the work is so layered through different metaphor. Um, I think maybe, you know, trying, it's interesting because a lot of times we, we tell people not to, to hide the stories and like obscure just for the sake of obscuring, but the way you obscure things through metaphor adds to the poem instead of subtracts, which is a really fascinating thing. Thank you. Um, let's see. Let's see if there's any comments, but let's hear, let's hear another poem. Okay, um, we can do Stealing That Storm in a, in a Teacup, page number 61. Okay. So, uh, Storm in a Teacup is a song by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, a band I adore. This poem has nothing to do with the band, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> here it is. Stealing That Storm in a Teacup. To fall in love is to create a religion that has a fallible God, Borges. That year, when summer butterflied into winter, I caterpillared into a thief. Your dialect was the first to go. Its lilts transitioned into a guitar riff, which I sneakily secured inside my bones. Your mind's morphology, I morphed into a semblance of sanity across my skies. That lone cigarette we had once shared became the sun inside dark alleys of my eyes. Your shifting identities I stole over time, cataloging them into neat rows for perusal in lonelier times. I stole and stole until I became a salient museum of your Eunice. Now this museum is just another brick and mortar in a city learning to steal differently. Hmm. Yeah, great line in that, or last line in that poem. I love that, stealing that storm in a teacup. Um, it, it, you mentioned posting on social media. Um, do you do you post things um, that, that you haven't published yet? Or do you do you sort of wait until you've published them in some kind of magazine or, or, or e-zine or something before sharing them on social media? Because I was thinking about it, too. I mean, the poems, that was probably one of the longer poems in the book, at least lengthwise. There aren't many two-page poems. And, and so most of them fit within like an Instagram shape or like in a, in a you know, you could do it in one image on Twitter or, or whatever, whatever platform of your choice you might have. Is that something that you do, um, share poetry through social media directly? Or do you, do you tend to wait and, until it's published and then share it? I wait till uh, it is published somewhere and then I share the link. Mm -hmm. And sometimes other people share my poems, my published poems, and then I reshare that link. Mm -hmm. But I never upload something which is not published on my own. Yeah. And and why is that? I don't know. I I think I feel I'm going to jinx it or something. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I tend to be very uh, superstitious. I wait till it is published and then I share it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. It's just a process. It's just something I have been doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. It's just, um, you know, with with the ways technology is allowing for so many more possibilities for, for going out and sharing poems and getting them into the world. Um, it, it's something I think about a lot. About well, whether or not, I think yeah. a lot of... A lot of magazines don't really publish poems that are published on websites. So that is one issue also. Mm -hmm. So it's better to wait till you have it published somewhere. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I just, I always wonder if, um, you know, if, if it is worth waiting sometimes, you know, I wonder if, um, if maybe we should just, just share more readily um, than we tend to do. Like if it's holding, holding literature back by, by not sharing things right away. Um because you know it might be a year before it's published. Yeah, right. Too. 
Um, let's see. So, so um, now that this book is done, and it, this book feels so thematic. I don't know. I mean, you said that you were sort of writing from the same space, and and, and you know, and so the, the poem, the book came together organically as like separate books. Um, yeah. But but what are you working on next? Because it, it really feels like the, there's so much cohesion because of that repetition of the city as a kind of a character in the book. Um, so how do you move on from so, this book that's so thematic yeah. to something else? So I'm working on uh, My City is a Murder of Crows, Volume 2. Ah, okay. So, yeah. So in this book, we talked about um, we talked about the mouth, we talked about the abdomen, we talked about nerves, we talked about the heart. So in the next book there will in the next volume of the book there will be different body parts i guess for example the feet and the feet poems uh, kind of talk about travel poems poems that i write when i'm waiting you know in the airport or like you know in the bus or you know stuff like that mm-hmm. and um, so yeah those will be another set of poems i'm working on that hopefully it should be out by next year let's see if i can finish the manuscript yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. So it's it's, it's going to continue. Um, the, yeah. the one thing that people have mentioned, it's a beautifully produced book. I mean, the cover is just great. We and other people have already at the top have yeah. mentioned how beautiful the cover is, which you're holding up there. Um, that crow wing, um, you know, in in the I don't. It's just the color. It's a beautiful cover. But how did you how did you focus on that cover art? How did you find that? Well, the cover art was uh, done by my publisher, Mr. Bitan Chakraborty. Is one of my publishers. The other guy is uh, Dr. Kirti Sengupta. So, uh, so Bitan Chakraborty does a lot of covers and he is amazing. So they gave me two choices. One was this and the other one was in soft pink. And uh, when I saw this, I instinctively knew that it has to be this one because it kind of captures the intrigue of the book really well. Because it's not a full crow. It's a half crow. Mm-hmm. So I think it was very intriguing to me in my head. Yeah, for sure. And the, and the way that the colors, um, you know, the, the, there's only two colors yeah. and then the, the little bit of red in the, um, in the text. Right. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, it's really stark, beautiful, beautiful cover. Um, Thank you. Also, the red is on the word murder. Mm-hmm. But here the word murder means like a group of crows, not like a murder murder. But then, you know, painting it red as if, you know, it's in, it's in blood, you know, so that also creates a mystique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, and and how much of that that plays that that, that you know that the, the group of clothes is a murder. Um, how much does that play into the book as a metaphor? Um, I think because uh, the, the the title says my city is a murder of crows. I think from that point of view, it makes a lot of sense because the city is the central element, and. Uh, a murder of crows can do a lot of things. So I guess it is open to interpretation and mm-hmm. it can mean a lot of things. So I think it kind of uh, covers the mistake really well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. Well, there's a little bit more time. Do you want to finish that with two last poems? Yeah, sure. Okay. So we can read a gazelle on page 84 because we were talking about form and stuff. So... Interestingly, I wrote this poem from the hospital bed in 2020. A guzzle for the art of free falling. A blue serenity has forested where a stillness blooms. A cold fire now abounds where a stillness blooms. I shut my eyes, a calmness sweeps me over. Silence like a song sounds where a stillness blooms. Existence is but one deep breath centered into self. Purposeful breathing resounds 
where a stillness blooms. This life is a droplet hanging on the eyelash of fate. Forgiveness is profound where a stillness blooms. Ground yourself in this river, Nikita, for being lost is being found where a stillness blooms. Yeah, that's a beautiful agazal for the art of free falling. Um, so Ghazal is in Urdu, uh, Persian Urdu art form like, of writing poetry. So the last, it kind of has its own rules and stuff. It's, it's fascinating. A mm-hmm. lot of people are writing Ghazals in English. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and so can you tell us, I mean, wh- what was that? Tell us more about that experience of being in the hospital. Because I didn't, I, in my opinion, and in my imagination, you wouldn't have been able to write a poem. Like you had that, um, even, even with the fever um, and the isolation, you still had the ability to write. Um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this a lot. I mean, actually, my parents thought I'm not going to make it. Like when I was hospitalized, because there was so much of, confusion around COVID and like people didn't know what was happening and all the test reports were coming negative. So nobody really knew what was going on. And I think for a moment, even I thought I was not going to make it out alive. And uh, I think that is when I began thinking about things like, you know, forgiveness and, you know, you should be kind, you should forgive people more and stuff like that. Hmm. So it was constantly playing in my head. So, I mean, I think the lines kind of formed in my head and I had my phone with me. So I kind of, wrote the poem and also I think the illness kind of changed me for a while like it it literally changed my personality I have a poem on that can I read it yeah for sure it's on page 19 it's called reverb post hospitalization 2020 an illness has taken hostage of this body and upturned the hourglass of my being. Somebody else lives in this consciousness now, this somebody who has singed my relish for the soft coldness of dusks, dark rooms, and all things wet and icy. Instead, I now find in me a perpetual seeking for the sun. Like a lover, I observe the changing texture of its rays through the day, soft mislin during early hours, sikkimi's wool at noon, pinafored and layered cotton before dusk. It filters through the many layers of my curls and makes love to my face in strange geometric shapes. Like a needle, it then ruptures my skin and enters this body, doesn't leave, lingers all night like certain thoughts. Sun spread on my skin. Dada's warm shawl. Yeah, beautiful. A hymen there. Um, reverb. Yeah. From, Dada uh, means our grandfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I noticed was India, I mean, the, the place where I live, it's very, very hot. And so I think I ha- I've always had a fascination for like colder things. But like after the illness, I kind of began like roaming around in the afternoon sun like it's bloody 40 degrees and I'm on my roof roaming around. So I, I kind of began loving the sun a lot. Hmm. So I saw these aspects where my personality was literally changing. So that was very, very fascinating to me. Yeah, that, that definitely is. Um, and I yeah. wonder how much, you know, um, how much the virus had to do with that or how much the, the psychological experience, you know, how much, you know, you know, what is physical and actually neurological and what is uh, yeah, um, the, the, the traumatic nature of that event. Yeah. Um, yeah, beautiful poems. Do you want to? I mean, we have time for one more. Do you want to close out with one last poem? Sure. 
we can do the last poem. Okay. Ones and zeros, page number 95. This body is an automatic that drops on the nearest solid surface and powers off the eyes in this lesser reality. In a hyper-reality, it is Googling five tips to remain productive in an apocalypse. Even when the eyes close in one plane of existence, they remain wide, wide awake in all others. The parts of me that live inside screens have now broken themselves free of me to become something I barely recognize. I'm now dreaming of the apps that become me in my nightmares. I am the cyclical movement of eyes across the screen as it scrolls by itself over absurd wish lists. Now I'm a voice in my head and letters across boxed textual frames. I'm not solid anymore. I'm a mere phantom itch for my corporeal existence. First, the sound of a tsunami overpowers everything. And next, I'm drowning, drowning, drowning in a wave of ones and zeros, symbols and logos, until a claustrophobia jerks me awake. Slice silence of the night, eye sockets across a floor. Yeah, another beautiful poem, another hyphen. There's ones and zeros. Um, and again, we're uh, reading poems from uh, My City is a Murder of Crows. Um, thanks so much for being a guest today, Nikita. It's been great to talk to you. Um, it's so much fascinating stuff going on here. Um, yeah, I really, it's just wonderful. Um, so glad I could be a guest. Thanks a lot. And I hope everybody picks up a copy of this book. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, Nikita Parikh, and of course her book is My City is a Murder of Crows. And the best way, I think I have the Amazon link up, um, so go to the show notes and pick it up from Amazon if you'd like, uh, My City is a Murder of Crows by Nikita Parikh. Now, um, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to go to the open lines, and how the open lines work, once again, is uh, first email your poems to open, that's open M-I-C, open mic, at rattle.com, um, so I can show them on screen like I was showing Nikita's poems. And then, um, and then I'm going to get the Zoom link, and you can join in on the Zoom if you would like to. If you don't want to share poems, though, just keep sit tight right where you are and uh, watch, watch the poems, because the best way to watch is through YouTube or Facebook or wherever you're watching right now. But if you would like to, uh, if you would like to join on Zoom and share a poem, please feel free. I'm deploying the links right now, um, and I'll pin them to the top. So just join us over on Zoom, and I'm going to take a brief break, and I will be right back in just a moment with the open lines. Okay. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, let's see. So the prompt for last week, um, I will read it again. It's a long, it's a complicated prompt from Bruce, um, Bruce Bennett. And uh, the prompt for this week was right here. Fascinating, a fascinating prompt. Is um, in his long autobiographical poem, The Prelude, Wordsworth writes about what he called spots of time. Small, memorable events we experience that thereafter remain in our consciousness and give profoundest knowledge, helping us determine who and what we are and what we may become. Write a poem in which you focus on one of those spots of time in your own life and what it has subsequently meant to you. So that was the prompt for this week. And uh, this is a poem that I wrote this morning. This is a spot of time. It's a hyphen, which um, when in doubt, write a, write a hyphen. 
<laughs> Here's a spot of time. Uh, late for school, I'd forgotten a book, so I closed the door in front of me and turning saw my father around a corner in that magic of a hallway mirror find the missing report card on the mess of his desk and ball it in the trash, then stomp to the trash and shout up to my brother, look what I found in the trash, you son of a bitch, you thought I wouldn't find it. I left my book and slammed the door as I left. The sky's reflection on the surface of the lake, more real than sky. So it was my hymen, a spot of time. And that was definitely, that was the moment where I knew I did not believe anything my father ever said again. So that is a, uh, that is a spot of time for me. Now let's see what everybody else has. And you can share prompt poems if you'd like. You can share poems about current events. You can share poems that you've published recently and are, and are proud of and want to give me a link. And I can show the, the journal where it was published. All of that is great. So let's see what we've got. And we've got first up, for the first time in a long time, Nivedita is here live instead of uh, through video. So we'll say hi to Nivedita. Hey, Nivy, how you doing? Hey, Tim. I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I think it's about two or three months since I've actually spoken with you live. And it's it's yeah. such a treat. It really is great. I mean, I, we, we all love seeing you and, and having you on with the videos, but it's great to have you live. It's nice to have a time where it's possible for you. <laughs> um, yeah. And so what do you have to share with us this week? Um, so I wrote a prompt poem, as as always, and mine is is not as esoteric as yours. I mean, the thing I, according to me, the most important spot in time for me, though there have been many, is one where I actually learned how to become, or rather I'm learning how to become, let's put it that way. And uh, I think the time that I really thought about that was back when I was studying my master's in the UK. Uh, I was out for a walk in the park and I came across this puddle and it was, it was just there. It was just a puddle. It was just reflecting things around it. People were tossing things into it, but it created as minor a ripple as possible. And then it again went back to calmness. And I think that sort of stayed with me. And that is, uh, I think that's when I decided that, you know what, like I should aim to be like that. Like, I mean, of course I know that getting annoyed at things is not going to do anything. So we just mentally torture ourselves with it. So let's, let's aim to be like that still water puddle and try to learn calmness. So I think that's the spot of time that I chose. And uh, yeah, so in the meantime, when I wasn't there, I got a chapbook published as well. It's oh, wow. called it's The Many Modes of Water. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, congratulations on that, Nivi. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, and, and what, a wonderful, is... what a wonderful transformative moment, too. I love that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this poem is published in that book. I've sent you the poem, as always. I'll just read it from my copy here. Awesome. Thank you. Oh, learning to be a still water puddle. The simplest of all water, it stays put, calmly reflecting back everything in its surround. The simplest reflection, yet the truest, for it shows exactly what is there, not what we wish to see or what it wishes for us to see. Yet the effort it takes to be still is more challenging than the time it takes for one tiny ripple to form. One tiny ripple from the drop of water one drop of water that fell from the sky, that fell from the sky now turned angry. That one drop created a ripple so large and all-encompassing that the still water could stay still no more. That minute shallow disturbance was enough, enough to rid it of its calm stillness. Uh, So the first part of the poem is 
the spot in time that I wish I could capture back and be and not not the ending portion of it, although that's what inevitably happens. <laughs> um, and I have a second small poem, which is about self-care, which I think we all need uh, through tough times and easy times. It's called Unselfish. And this is uh, from my first book, which I think I've spoken about before. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's called She and it's all about women. So this book, although the pronouns are feminine, it applies to everybody. Unselfish. It is now time for her to become selfish and turn inwards. Not because she loves you less, but because it is time for her to love herself more. And I think that is also an equally important spot in time that we we all should think about because we always spend time doing things for others at the cost to our own self, our own mental, physical, psychological health and everything. So I think those are the two spots in time that I most wanted to focus on. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, two great spots in time. Thanks so much for sharing both of those, Nivi. It was, it was wonderful. Thanks, Tim. It was lovely actually yeah. seeing all you guys in person. It and is, yeah. It makes, you, it makes me tempted to switch everybody. to this time. But, <laughs> but yeah. All my friends are here, and I'm like, so happy to actually be uh, here. Uh, yeah, so glad to have you. Thanks, Nivi. Thank you, Tim. Right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You too. That was Nibbidi de Karthik with, uh, with two poems and that from her uh, book. Oh, I wish I could remember the title off the top of my head. The, uh, but I find it. She's going to hold it up for me. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Learning to, to be a stillwater puddle was one of them. Thanks, thanks Nibby. Um Next up, let's go to... Um, let's go to... Actually, Bruce Bennett is here. Let's talk to Bruce Bennett. Do you unmute yourself, Bruce? Sure. Hi, Tim. Hey, Bruce. Yeah, good to see you again. So Bruce was here last week, of course, and it was his prompt. So um, (laughs) thanks for joining back. It's really fun to see you again. Thank you, Tim. I really enjoyed the interview today, too. Yeah, they're just always a lot of fun to do. Um, You know, yours was great, and uh, it was great to talk to uh, Nikita. So so what do you – you wanted to share uh, one of your your, uh, Spot of Time poems. Actually, I wanted to share one that I didn't read last week and afterward. I loved the interview, but afterward I thought, oh, I wish I had read this poem. And uh, it's partly because it's it's another villanelle, but it's about uh, the commitment to writing, mm-hmm. which everybody involved with Rattle and elsewhere is interested in. So I thought I wanted to read that um, partly just because I so appreciate other people's commitment to writing. Awesome. Thanks. I did write directly about it. So this is called commitment. Okay. You need to write until you get it right. That is your job, what you were born to do. It might not take a lifetime, but it might. Sure, it's a burden sometimes, but it's light. You make the rules, which then apply to you. That's how you write it till you get it right. Having that goal, keeping it plain in sight, yet easing up or off since that works too. It might not take a lifetime, but it might. At times, the task's a breeze. At times, it's tight going, a maze where every problem's new and you just need to write to get it right. Right on, hell take the cost, by day, by night, alone, unknown. And yes, the perks are few, but though it takes a lifetime, and it might, what's better than commitment to a fight that brings your best out, focused on what's true? You have one purpose, write it till it's right. It might not take a lifetime, but it might. 
Oh, great villanelle. Yeah, and very inspiring. Thanks for sharing that, Bruce, and, and great to see you again. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I hope you come, feel great free. Please you. come on every week if you can. I'd love it. I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah, Thank great. You. Great. Thanks, Bruce. Good to see you again. All right. And let's go next to, um, let's go to Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's, uh, yeah, it was a great advantage to get to see Nivy. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, I missed missed the interview, but I'll I'll catch it later. I had a poetry workshop. Uh, Did you say one or two poems? I think we did two today. There's, yeah, we have have a good amount of time. Sure. Okay. Uh, Terrific. Well, I sent you one uh, by email. It's a revision of uh, um, Poets Respond poem. Mm -hmm. I just sent it in called Joe Says Vlad Is Not Joking About Nukes. Okay, and then it's the other it one, a uh, poet response submission. I'll pull it up. Yeah, it was uh, Gozzle for the uh, Gozzle for the trees. Okay, yeah, perfect. Okay. Uh, so the first one requires zero introduction. <laughs> okay, let's hear. Uh, Joe says Vlad is not joking about nukes. Did you hear the one about Ground Zero, where Vlad, an A bomb, and an irradiated baby walk into a bar? The barkeep looks up and says, what is this, a joke? Or maybe it's the old saw about the inmates who know all the good ones, so they just shout out the numbers. 87, says one, and they all laugh. Um, The new guy tries. A hundred thousand, he calls. Only Vlad laughs. Get it? It's dead Ukrainians, and slaps his knee. He hoots so hard snot flies from his nose, or maybe Brits. He's on a roll. London is lovely this time of year, and the Thames burns phosphorus. People jump in because their skin blisters is on fire. Just like my jokes, Vlad adds, on fire. He can't help himself. The zingers keep coming. In Paris, the living walk around dazed. They see their future bodies pocked with mounds of raised and twisted flesh. The joke will be on them. And then there's Vlad on stage at the UN. The spotlight operator flips a switch. Vlad sits on a high stool, microphone in hand. He's trying out new material. No one laughs. He looks out at the crowd with that arch little smile of his, head tipped a bit, eyes twinkle in that KGB way, but instead of dropping the mic, he literally bombs. Yeah, frightening poem. And this is a week where I um, haven't been following the news at all. I've just seen some people like talking about on Twitter, but the idea of um, what people are talking about is terrifying, at least. Yeah. Yeah, it's no joke. No, it it wouldn't be. Um, So for some reason, submittable... um, is down for me. Um, I'm getting a 500. Okay. So I can't pull up your poem. Do you want to maybe email it to me and then we'll circle back to you when it gets here? Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah do we'll do that with now. the second poem. Okay, cool. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. And then let's go to uh, Kimberly McNeil next. Hey, Kimberly, are you there? Okay. Well, let's instead, I think we can't get you unmuted. Yeah. I'll see if, uh, um, well, we'll try to come back to you. Um, I just got the poem um, from Dick, so I'll do. Let's do Dick's second poem then. 
So let's unmute Dick again. And hey, Dick, here, we're back again for the second poem, Guzzle, Guzzle for the Trees. And I got to remember to say, I, I did, I keep saying Gazal because I like the sound of it better than Guzzle. <laughs> but, yeah, I, but it I, definitely is I Guzzle. Yeah. I practiced before coming on today. <laughs> well, I didn't. And so that. I I flubbed it when I when a Guzzle came up on the uh, <laughs> in the interview earlier. So, yeah. um, so Guzzle for uh, the Trees, yeah. Yeah, so just a... a, a brief introduction. Um, this woman who I note in the epigram, Lesia Ukrania, uh, is a revered literary nationalist figure in Ukraine from the late 19th, earliest 20th century, mm -hmm. a poet, author, playwright, and she combined all of them in her sort of magnum opus called The Forest Song. Oh, and I found all this out as I was trying to figure out how to end this poem that I had already written most of. So um, her forest song is another, there are monuments and statues to her all over Ukraine. Uh, you know, imagine a country where a literary figure, a poet has monuments all yeah, over. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, yes. Um, so it's guzzle for the trees. The epigraph from uh, Lesia Ukrania um, in the four, and she, incidentally, she adopted that last name, you know, when when it was dangerous to be a somebody who claimed that Ukraine was a, was a nation mm. in Tsarist Russia. Um, in the forest, nothing is ever mute. The great oaks of Ukraine will soon wear their autumn brown leaves. From Kharkiv to Odessa, there will be whispering among the trees. The birches will be naked soon, their branches scissors cut against the sky as they were before the war, when nothing had yet undone the trees. Near Lviv, the pines confer about what they've heard from the front. Underground, their roots are the speaking tongues of trees. Before the days of the Cossacks, who swept in from the steppes before Ukrainian was spoken, the ancient Maxim oak was king of the trees. It's, it cast its shadow on, a thou on the thousand battles that raged at its feet, limbs stretched skyward away from the blood and bodies that fed the trees. In the east, the enemy flees, flees leaves tortured corpses, hunger, disease, the oaks shudder in the sullen air that's clung to the trees. Is this what it's like before the smash of the atom, before the flash and mushroom clouding that shatters the trunks of trees? Or is this a hint of peace when Bibusias emerge from cellars to embrace their warrior kin who left before summer sprung green in the trees? The slight sounds of winter, the shush of falling snow on the beaches, the rustle of the remaining leaves, sleet ticking on what's clung to the trees. I've no more poems about this war, its tattered flags and buried bones, its grief. Now again is time for the forest song to be sung to the trees. Yeah, great guzzle, great poem, as always, Dick. It's really a pleasure having two of your poems every week. Um, wonderful stuff, yeah. as always. Thanks for sharing it, Dick. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate you. Yeah, yeah, you too. 
Yeah, that was Richard Westheimer with uh, Gazelle for the Trees. And uh, the other poem um, was... The other poem was... Uh, Joe Joe says Vlad is not joking about nukes. Yeah. So uh, let's go next to... Let's go back to Kimberly McNeil. Okay, Kimberly, are you there? Can you... Uh, is it working? Yeah. Hey. Hi, Tim. Yeah, great to Sorry, see you. Sorry, I couldn't get unmuted. Yeah, no problem at all. So what do you have that you'd like to share? Um... This is a poem I wrote to the prompt. Uh-huh. And it's titled Death Prequel 5. And it's when I first thought about the quality of life. Mm-hmm. I first met death in 1971. She had bad breath and looked like a hairy turd squished under my foot. It was my hamster, Harriet, who had just the day before eaten all four of her squirming newborn litter. Harriet was dead. The children were blamed. Our relentless flashlight interruption during her labor and delivery, the cause of her maternal anxiety. Created a homicidal hamster. It was good, I theorized, that I stepped on Harriet. She would have suffered every day over the cannibalistic meal she had made of her young. Oh, a heartbreaking poem. Um, thanks for sharing that. It was death prequel number five. Kimberly, uh, thanks so much for sharing that. Sure. Thank you. Yep. Take care. Always good to see you. All right. And then next up we have, um, let's go to um, Guy Chambers. Good morning, Kim. How's it going? <laughs> hey, guy. Good. Yeah, I'm still, you know, I I, I, I love that Nivy was on, but um, I'm just not a morning person, so I still feel a little yeah, a little not on top of my game today, uh, to be honest. But <laughs> it's great to be here oh, yeah. and great to yeah, uh, share good, poems good with everybody. Yeah, it's good to be in the morning because up here in Canada, it's Thanksgiving weekend, so it's a oh, long weekend. Oh, that's right. Here, yeah, so. happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. 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 yeah so, and... Uh, I, I really like that uh, interview there. I like the title for that book she has there, that My City is a Murder of Crows, man. That's a perfect title for all the poems she did, you it, know. It really and is, Very yeah. short poems. Mm-hmm. I said, right to the point and everything. I thought it was really great. Yeah, I know you like poems okay, in that his, style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like those poems. You do. Okay, this is kind of my prompt poem here. Okay. I went a while back. I got to came back to it, so I really like this one. And uh, I can really relate to this. And some of the other people out there can probably relate to this poem. So here it goes. It's called The Big Red Brick House. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. The big red bricks, very tall and mean. Huge windows, terrifying eyes, intimidating, scary. The big house. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. Chain fence all around me. Penned in. Nowhere to go. P. 
people everywhere shouting, throwing things, roughhousing. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody. They're all eyeing me, knowing this is my first time in. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. Look at that horrifying godless door speaking to me. Welcome to hell. I don't want to go in there. I don't want to go in there. A buzzer rings. People heading in the creepy door like a monster, eating them up. What's going to happen to me in there? Why did I deserve this? This is the longest walk of my life by myself, the first day on my way to grade one. Oh, that's that's scary. Thanks for sharing that guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I got another yeah, I got a little another pump pump there that got just okay. below there. It's called Masterpiece. And this was a prompt that we had for one of our uh, 30-day prompt there. It was called Masterpiece. So I came up with this one. Masterpiece. A masterpiece. Being in a family picture. Hmm. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Good contrast between the two poems too, Guy. Thanks for sharing both yeah. of those. Okay, thank you. Yep, take care. It's Guy Chambers with Masterpiece and the Big Red Brick House. Um, let's go next to, um, let's see, um, let's go to Jayanthi Rangan. Oops, let me see, Jayanthi Rangan. Okay, hi, Tim. Hi, Jayanthi, um, how are you doing today? Good, good. Um, this poem that I'm sharing, um, do you have it with you? I do, yeah, and there's a beautiful picture of Jasmine that you included, too. Uh, yeah, I put it there because it's uh, it's so unique to South India that uh, I had to I had to put it for a reference. Mm. Um, so this poem says, "What to gift a person who has everything? A street vendor of jasmine strings, selling the bud twines on the street without a cash register." her earnings tied to her sari pallu. Her work hours begin with morning sun and end whenever her supply is gone. How could she make enough money to feed herself a bite? I ask myself a hundred times. I lost my purse that day while absorbed in her affair. It wasn't just the money I lost important documents too. After realizing my loss, I searched for the flower seller, but she was nowhere. I was a rotting tomato, despair filled. The next morning I faced the vendor and poured out my anguish. She opened her burlap sack to ask, yours? She had found it on the road I flash open my newfound joy. My money was intact. My passport was untouched. I thrust five big notes for her reward. She refused saying, I have everything I need. Mm. What? I asked, still smiling from my gain. I had heard her all right, but I could not comprehend my 
idiocy, not knowing her her gift was giving. Oh, that's wonderful. Great story. Thanks so much for sharing that, Janthi. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, very heartwarming. Thank you. Um, that was Janthi Rangan with uh, What to Gift a Person Who Has Everything. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks for being a guest and, and joining us today. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Brent Stauffer next. Hey, Tim. Hey, Brent. How you doing today? It looks a little less cold being not at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It feels good out here today. It was great to see Nevi. Yeah, it was. That was awesome. Yeah. And she's got a new book coming out. That's uh-huh. great. Yeah, all good things from her. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's cool that Bruce is here. That's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. We, we really hope yeah. Bruce, Bruce, please come back frequently. <laughs> It'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's awesome. Um, so, and thanks for the prompt, Bruce. It, um, I, uh, um, was pretty easy for me to think of something once I, uh, I actually went, uh, I looked up time and read the section of the prelude that we're about. And, um, was, it was easy to come to the conclusion I should write about this episode that um yeah happened when i was a little kid it it actually happened about three times and um it uh it led to a lifelong interest in mystical experiences and um hey brent could you but uh, it wasn't until about maybe 10 or 15 years ago that i heard about something called temporal temporal yeah um, could you maybe turn your yeah. uh, video off? Because I think your connection's poor today, and you're cutting out because of the bandwidth issues. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there you go. I think we'll, we'll be able to hear better now. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, sorry about that. Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. But, but so, so keep telling that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, um, oh, then I heard about something called temporal lobe epilepsy. Oh yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Which, uh, which. Uh, um, the neuro neurologist um, Oliver Sacks wrote about, and he he posthumously has diagnosed the Christian mystic Hildegard von Bingen with having and heard. Uh, you're breaking up a lot, Brent. Uh, I think we lost you completely. Let's see. We'll, um, maybe you should disconnect and then try to reconnect and we'll go to another, uh, another person. Cause I want to hear, if not, I'll read the poem for you, but, uh, but we'll see. I guess maybe the, uh, bandwidth isn't good on the, during the day. Um, so maybe, maybe like sign out of zoom and sign back in Brent and hopefully that'll work. Um, but if not, I'll just read your poem for you. Um, let's go to Barbara Taylor instead. Hi, Tim. Hey, Barbara, how you doing today? Okay, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, it's a great. It's it's interesting because it's like a great way to start the day, um, but it's also I mm-hmm. like I like nighttime better. <laughs> so um, <laughs> either works for me. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. Well, I'm glad you could join us. So, what do you have that you'd like to share? Mm-hmm. Um, I have the short poem, and then I have a couple of visuals to go with it. So, um, I'm I'm an artist. I do watercolor oh, and a lot great. of other things. But in in learning watercolor. Um, 
kind of a mystery. And so this was a poem that fit the prompt that kind of cracked a code for me. So, um, so I go out and I do a lot of photography and then I paint the pictures that I photograph. And I noticed that when I'm doing skies, the, the top is darker and it gets mm -hmm. lighter as yeah. um, mm -hmm. kind of a stratosphere thing. So the first uh, painting that I painted, um, not first painting, but the one of the first paintings, it's, well, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then I crack the code ah. and you can start to see that, that gradation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's where the poem comes from. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the so transition is great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the poem is called Watercolor. I finally cracked the code of mixing sky blue. It's not easy because sky blue can be many different shades of blue. The trick is to begin with light and end with dark. The base is Windsor blue, the green shade. The in-between is Windsor blue, the red shade. And the alchemy is a deep mix of turquoise and ultramarine for the highest space before space we see is blue. With this knowledge, I can do anything. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I love that. The highest space before space we see is blue. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Barbara. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. It was Watercolor by uh, Barbara Tyler. Thanks, Barbara. Um, and now let's You're go. Welcome. Yeah, let's go back to Brent and see if the connection's a little better for Brent. Hey, Brent, you back? Let's see if we got you this time. Okay. Um, we do. Oh, it's much talking. better. I don't know what the issue was before. Okay. But yeah, yeah. Well, I, I disconnected from the Wi-Fi and hopped back on. Okay, so, cool. Uh, cool. Hopefully that'll that'll do the trick. Um, okay, so when you so, started breaking um, up, you were telling the story of um, of that guy. I can't remember his name. Oh yeah, Oliver Sacks, mm -hmm. and he's a neurologist, and he has uh, uh, what would you call it? Um, forensically diagnosed. Hildegard von Bingen of temporal lobe epilepsy, which may or may not uh, have something to do with this experience that I had mm -hmm. as, as a kid. Yeah. Uh, the rest of it is pretty much uh, in the poem, I think. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's hear it. So, okay. Hello. <clears throat> Once when I was, what, maybe 11 years old, walking across the flat, clear part of the backyard, Alongside the row of holly bushes, among the tall shadows of the pines and oaks, in the mellow air of an autumn afternoon, thinking of nothing, I had to stop in the middle of all that was happening, just to stand there, blinking in the sun, and marvel at how it would never end. Friends, I knew death was a lie, with the force of a thunderclap, as if my soul had broken the sound barrier, flown all around the stunned world, then slammed back into my body. And I knew that I was the same as you, as you are to them, as they are to us, that you look out of my eyes as I look out of yours. Oliver Sacks would chalk it up to a little temporal lobe epilepsy, like with Hildegard von Bingen and her visions of heavenly choirs. For decades, though, Season after season, I've been able at times to return to the shocking certainty of a boy standing in a yard in Birmingham whose small frame was filled with tender love for all things. If God had lived in our house, I'd have thanked them for saying hello. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love that story. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brent. Yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, and thanks for the prompt, Bruce. It was I, so it, it shocks me a little bit that I never thought about writing about that experience before because yeah, yeah. it was very transformative. Yeah, anyway, well, I'm so glad you did. Yeah, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Great story. Good to see you as always, Brent. Good, yep. good afternoon. Yep, take care. Bye. Yeah, Brent Stoffer with Hello. And that is going to be it for the open line section of the show. So I'm going to end the Zoom call. There are a bunch of people who wanted to share poems um, who couldn't be here because of the time. So let me uh, let me read a couple poems, too, as many as I can. Let's see what we have here. Um, so this is Lenore Weiss's poem, um, Ben Levine at the Daily World. So this is from uh, Lenore Weiss. So I'll read this uh, right here. Here we go. Ben Levine at the Daily World. The elevator shivered as it climbed the three or maybe four floors to the office. I hurried to the copy editor's desk where a balding man unwrapped a mid-morning snack, usually a salami or a tuna fish sandwich. But not before tucking any truant lettuce back into its bread, motioning with his free hand for me to sit, sit, he reached for a red pencil and went to battle, now munched on saltine crackers, sweeping any crumbs into his palm and emptying them into his open mouth, double-waxing my copy and encircled the one or two words he deemed acceptable. He never wore glasses. Start here. In a few moments, it was all over, patted his mouth with a white napkin and dismissed me with a sweet smile. I thanked him and hid behind my desk, grateful for escape, he said he needed 250 words in less than 10 minutes. I rolled another sheet of paper into the platen and shifted the carriage all the way to the left with a sharp ding. Oh, great memory there. That was uh, Lenore Weiss with, um, with Ben Levine at the Daily World. Yeah, fascinating memory there. Thanks for sharing that, Lenore. Um, and let's see, we're going to go next to... So Mary Ann Abdo has... Let me do, I think I'll just do one of these. This is Labyrinth um, by Mary Ann Abdo. So here we go with this one. Uh, Labyrinth. Nothing but nothing. I extinguish my fear of birds flying into the night of no return. Chalk on the sidewalk washing away those fears. Bees are consumed with my flower's yellow heart. The glistening of bodily gestures reveals a true intention. Masking away the tears of that girlish soul. Fog never really goes away on a winter's night. Memories of faraway places thirst for recollection. Wounds of the long-ago past run away like a pack of wolves. A face mask blows away like a hurricane-force wind, revealing my true nature. Gilded, fragmented words turn into mud along the stony, cracked wall, riding along the riverbank while a fisherman is casting his line where the words fall into sentences enveloping the bass's wide mouth. Universal desires only want silence, away from this maddening world of needless motion. Black darkness creeps in during the howling silver moon. My dead body is lost along a myriad of shadows, stretching through the Sahara Desert, escaping backwards somewhere through that serpentine path. Very cool. That was Labyrinth by Mary Ann Abdo. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Marianne. Um, who else should we share a poem by? Let's see. 
Let's see. So Clayton Clark has one she sent that says she's hoping to read. So maybe we'll catch her on a show. I'll, I'll save this. Let's see. Yeah, I'll say I'll say this in case we can catch her on Zoom. I think she always has to run it out. She's a very busy person. Um, but let's. Uh, I'll read Ted Guevara's, and then we'll call it a day. And as always, Ted includes a very cool photograph with his poem, and uh, I'll put it on screen for everybody watching on YouTube and Facebook. But if if you can't see, I'll describe it. Um, this is a um, some kind of very weathered slot canyon, I guess, and and striations of very different colored sedimentary rock. So we have this rainbow of very thin layers of, of different colored rock going from gray to red. And that's the, the photo that Ted included with this poem. And here is the poem. And it's oomph and oops. I think this is a prompt poem. Let's see. We, the canvas, lie boring, if not basic. Black and white paints are media that demand perfect. But we are not that. There's bleed in us and smear and drip and worse, anger that flings us across the room. Very interesting. Oomph and oomps. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. Um, I think that's going to be it. I think everything else... Oh, Sharon Ferrante has one, too. This is another prompt poem. So here we have Sharon Ferrante, too. Um, And she says, um, I'm watching but not up to Zoom tonight if you have time. Oh, I missed this last week. That's why. Okay. So this is last week's prompt, which was to use the last line of someone's poem. Um, And this is... um, Last line, phototaxis, uh, by Brendan Constantine, and the first three lines are his his three lines that she jumps off from. So here is uh, Sharon Ferrante's poem from last week. In all these dark houses, the lamps inside us are all the way up, enough to heat a cup of coffee for the wet and shivering across flooded streets. We watch together the harder side of a west wind, Bring a deluge that doesn't deserve a name. Still, it gets two. It's always a hurricane. Then it's Ian who lifts your roof, throws it on another roof until nobody knows where where they live anymore. That was a great, great poem for Hurricane Ian. Um, thanks for sharing that, Sharon. A great ending there. Um, your roof, uh, you know, Ian who lifts your roof, throws it on another roof until nobody knows where they live anymore. Great ending. Sharon Ferrante with it in all these dark houses, spinning off a Brendan Constantine poem. Excellent stuff, Sharon. Um, let me double check. Okay, so that is going to be it for the day. Let me do the uh, the Saiku. And the Saiku is coming up right here. It is based on this article from New Scientist, which I thought was very... It's just a fun kind of article. So here it is. Here it is. Uh, Newly recognized species of sloth has a head like a coconut. And so Maine sloths were thought to be one species, but a genetic and physical analysis suggests they are actually two. And so this isn't really a discovered creature. Like, we knew that there were these Maine sloths. But what we didn't know is there are actually two completely distinct species of Maine sloth. And so that was a published in, an article in, um, I don't know if where it s- says where it was published. But it was an article that came out maybe, uh, you know, some kind of science journal. And um, and there's a picture of the Maine sloth whose, whose face looks like a coconut. And his head does look like a coconut for people who can't see the picture. It literally looks like someone drew or like photoshopped a little sloth nose and eyes onto a coconut. And that's what this little guy looks like. So here is my Saiku inspired by that really quick. The Saiku is 
Bearded sloth, head like a coconut, the next morning. Bearded sloth, head like a coconut, the next morning. That is my, um, the day after poker night face. <laughs> it's the bearded sloth. So there you go. That is the Saiku for this week. Hope you enjoyed that. And um, that's going to be the show for this week. We already mentioned the prompt for next week, um, which Nikita Parikh picked out. Um, it was her choice, the, the poem Circles from Rattle. So if you go to Nikita Parikh and, and type in Rattle, you'll find her poem Circles, which is an example of this style. But this is, um, um, an, and had, and I got to say this right, and had he, and had he is a, tech, a unique kind of Tamil poetry constructed such that the last or ending word of each verse becomes the first word of the next verse. In some instances, the last word of the series um, of verses becomes the beginning of the very first verse, thus making the poem a true garland of verses. And ha means end, and adhi means beginning. So that's an ad, and ah, I can't say it, and adhi um, poem and so you know the the last word of each stanza you could say um, becomes the first word of the next stanza and then so it becomes a kind of a garland running through the poem that is your prompt for this week to write i'm not gonna say it again um i'm gonna so uh that's your prompt for this week is to write a poem in that style and thanks for sharing that form it's a form i've never heard of or tried before um i, I only heard of it when um when nikita submitted that poem a year ago um, that's going to be the prompt for next week, and that is the show. Next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be uh, Robert Pinsky. Um, Robert, everybody knows, or most people probably know, he was the U.S. Poet Laureate for many years back, about 20 years ago. Um, he has a new memoir, Jersey Breaks, Becoming an American Poet, and so he'll be talking, reading a little bit from his memoir, and then sharing some poems as well. We'll talk poetry and all that good stuff like we always do. Rattlecast number 164 with Robert Pinsky. Uh, Monday, October 17th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you soon. Uh, Goodbye.